Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone, and happy Friday. If this voice does not sound familiar, it's the voice of Chris Liu, a sometimes guest host and a frequent guest of The Bill Press Show. Welcome to Washington, D.C., to The Bill Press Show uh, from our studios, which are right off of Capitol Hill. Uh, it is a pleasure to be with you this morning. We've got a fantastic set of guests. Uh, I am joined, as we always are, by uh, Bill's fantastic producer, Peter Ogburn. Hey, Chris. How you doing, man? It's great to be here. Welcome always, back. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Uh, it's a Friday. The weather's nice. Baseball's back. We had a great uh, all-star game here in D.C. Okay, let me ask you a question because Bill Bill likes the Nationals. Yes, and he's a pretty as, ca- as do I. He's a casual observer, I would say. Bill hates the Home Run Derby. I, I am not a fan of the Home Run Derby. Oh, no, you do! <laughs> Although I did watch it because it came down to the very last at bat and Bryce Harper came up big. So it was very exciting. Yeah, it may be the last big thing he does here in DC. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So we've got a fantastic uh set of guests today and I'll be biased. Uh they're fantastic because they're all friends of mine. These are people who served with me in the Obama administration. I'll tell you a little bit more about myself. Uh coming up uh at the seven thirty hour we've got Laura Rosenberger, who is a former foreign policy advisor to the Hillary Clinton campaign and she'll talk about the crazy week we've had with NATO and Russia. At 8 o'clock, we have Heidi Scherholz, who uh, is the former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor, and we'll talk about the economy, jobs, wages. And finally, at 8.30, we have Chris King, who is a former uh, deputy counsel to President Obama, and we'll be talking about the Kavanaugh nomination. But first... This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Chris, I'm sad to say every story on here is pretty depressing, so let me just run through these really quickly. Yesterday, the Miami Dolphins and the NFL, they put forward a proper anthem conduct section. 
for their players. And what does that mean? It is a new policy that will punish players who do not respect the national anthem. In other words, if you take a knee, if you protest in any way, you could be suspended for up to four games under this new team policy that was issued this week. And Peter, I suspect you could do a lot worse things off the field and get fewer than a four-game suspension. Okay, I can I can tell you right now just off the top of my head, and I, I, we can do some research and find out some more, but I can tell you off the top of the head, recently Jameis Winston faced a three-game suspension right. for groping a woman, right. an Uber driver. Uh, he groped this woman, and he got suspended for three games. Now, if you take a knee to protest the fact that black people are being killed in this country, that will get you four games. Or if I take What's a worse? need, it, or if I need to take a need to protest Uber drivers being groped, I get a h- higher penalty yes. than the person who does the groping. Yes, exactly. That's the, that, that. That sounds about right. I said this was all bad news, Chris. I have another really, really sad news story. Processed meats like bacon and hot dogs are bad for your mental health. That is a new study from Johns Hopkins University (laughs) where people who ate meats cured with nitrates are three times more likely to experience what they call a manic episode, including hyperactivity and insomnia. Those are other problems that you can have if you eat too much bacon, cured meat, hot dogs, things like that. Peter, what is your bacon intake? I don't eat bacon. I don't eat bacon. I don't. I'm eat. just. I. I. If the people can. I. My mouth is agape right now. I'm just looking. <laughs> I. I eat bacon, two to three times a week. Do you? It's still. I mean, bacon is delicious. Bacon yeah. is absolutely delicious. But the cured meat thing is. I, I can't do it anymore. I used to love it, but I just can't do it anymore. So I say that if I have a manic episode on the air, you'll understand why. <laughs> it's the. It's. It's not Chris, folks. It's just the bacon talking. <laughs> yeah. So especially now with the summer grill out, with the hot dogs and things like that. Anyway, uh, stay away from them, according to John's. Hopkins University, uh, there are a lot of really, really negative health impacts that you could face if you eat too much of the cured meat. So be careful out there. This is the Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. We are live from Washington, D.C. If this voice sounds unfamiliar to you, it is the voice of Chris Liu. I am a frequent guest of the Bill Press Show, which is what you are listening to, and a sometimes guest host. I'm joined by Bill's producer, Peter Ogburn. Hey, Chris. Great to be here, as always. Nice to have you. It's fun to be here. I um, What a week. <laughs> I, you know, it, we say that every single week, um, and and I'm going to kind of go through some of the things. We've got some great guests today. Um, anyway, Chris Liu, um, for those of you that don't know you, me, and there's no reason why you really would know me, uh, I, I have a couple of distinctions. Uh, I served seven out of eight years in the Obama administration. I managed uh, President Obama's cabinet, was the deputy secretary of labor. Uh, I am now a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. And it is uh, fun to be here and talking to some wonderful friends I have coming in. Uh, Let me just go through the lineup of guests, and then we'll get to some of the news of the day. 
uh, at the 7.30 hour, uh, Laura Rosenberger, who is the director of the Alliance for Secure Democracy, which is an organization that is working to deter uh, undermining of our elections, which is a very timely topic right now. Uh, Laura worked at the State Department under the Obama administration, as well as the National Security Council. She's a former foreign policy advisor to the Clinton campaign, uh, and she's a good friend of mine. Uh, at the 8 o'clock hour, we have Heidi Scherholz. Heidi is the director of policy at the Economic Policy Institute, and she's also formerly the chief, economic, uh, chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor, where I work. Uh, Heidi's going to talk about where the economy is right now, whether it really is the greatest economy of all time, as the president has been saying, and what is it about wages? Why, in this period of time of 4% unemployment, wages still are not going up? So that'll be at the 8 o'clock hour. And then at 8.30, we have Chris Kang. Chris served as the uh, deputy counsel to President Obama, where he was in charge of judicial nominations, including the Kagan and Sotomayor Supreme Court nominations, uh, and is now the chief counsel at a group called Demand Justice, uh, which is working to uh, push back against uh, Donald Trump's judicial nominations. So these are all friends. These are all really, really smart people, and my job is just to sit back and let them do some splaining. Uh, so you can follow me on, at chrislu44, that's C-H-R-I-S-L-U-44, on Twitter. Uh, please follow the show, BP Show, and you can always watch us on YouTube at The Bill Press Show. Just go to YouTube and search for Bill Press. Uh, I do want to give a special incentive for people to follow me on Twitter. So, uh, and Peter, I want to get your thoughts on this. I, I, the, the president is very good at giving nicknames to his opponents. Yes. And I don't know that we have come up with the best nickname for Donald Trump. Oh, wow. And so, I, you know, I want to encourage people not only to follow me and tweet at me, ChrisLu44, or at BP Show. Uh, would love to play some of those later on. That's a good idea. I will, um, I've been keeping a running total of some of my favorite ones. Oh, yeah, I'd love to hear some. We, uh, we, we've actually gotten a couple. I'll, I'll mention one really quickly okay. from our buddy Romaine, sure. who listens out in Chicago. Whenever he tweets to us, he always refers to him as Fat Donnie Two Scoops. Okay. That <laughs> That's his mafia name, Fat Donnie Two Scoops. All right, let me give you f f uh, four of my favorites. Let's hear them. Il Duché. <laughs> Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, I used to like Fat Nixon. Okay. Uh, but I think that I, I actually think that's an insult to Nixon. I, you know, I think especially after a week of foreign policy disasters, say what you will about Richard Nixon and Watergate, but on the foreign policy stage, he had many, many successes. So I, I may retire that I, one. That, that's, I think that might be the first time that that's been said on this show. Say what you will about Richard Nixon. <laughs> he was no Donald Trump. Uh, another good one. Fried chicken fascist. <laughs> I don't think that one. You, it's hard. That's that doesn't kind of roll off the tongue. Uh, the, my, and also, I, I hate anybody to denigrate denigrate uh, fried chicken. Fried chicken, right? Yeah, that's yeah. an insult to fried chicken yeah, as well. Yeah. And the other one I saw recently was tubby two tone. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we uh, so please please tweet at BP Show at Crystal forty four and um, and we'll read some of the best ones on the air. That's a good so, idea. That's so good idea. so Peter, this has been a nutty week, and and it's funny. We are only at the. 20th of July. This has been a crazy month. I just went back and looked at some of the other events that have made the news, which I think gives you a perspective of what news is like in the Trump era. July 2nd, so less than uh, 
three weeks ago. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh was nominated. That seems like an eternity now. Uh, July 5th, so basically two weeks ago, Scott Pruitt uh, resigned as the EPA administrator. And then July 12th, so eight days ago, uh, Peter Strozak, the uh, FBI agent, uh, testified. That was eight days ago. That seems like an eternity. Good grief, man. I mean, these things just move so fast. It it really does. So, Peter, look, you and I are in the political news business. Do you ever disengage from this? You ever say, "Hey, you know, for oh, about yeah. uh, for about like two hours, I'm gonna go hang out with my kid. I'm not turning Twitter on. I'm not gonna yeah. read news." No, I've I've talked about this before on the show. I uh, last year, the end of last year, I got off of Twitter for a couple of months, uh, and I ended up getting back on. Uh, but it totally changed the way that I especially with Twitter, digest. Like, I don't get on Twitter, and I'm not as as profoundly online as I used to be. And I also used to kind of have the hum of cable news on in the background, like while I was at home doing work or, like, cooking dinner, I'd have it on in the background. I don't do it anymore. I just can't. Uh, I've now built my schedule around sort of, like, dropping in and – catching up every couple of hours yeah you know it's amazing you get these twitter back and forth in particular with the president and uh it's it's both distressing when you read the tweets but then in some sense the in some the blow is sort of lessened when you kind of look at it 12 years uh, 12 12, it feels like 12 years 12 hours later (laughs) and you know the republic hasn't fallen uh, notwithstanding the fact that the president yet again yesterday called the press the, for instance, the real enemy of the people. And when you read it in real time, at least for me, you get this kind of sinking feeling. After you've some time has passed, it's easier to write it off, although perhaps that's simply just normalizing you know, the bad behavior. Well, you know, I think that f- the the switch that I had was, and I, this is not a new sentiment, right? This has been happening for a long, long time. But when I finally made the connection for me, that like i'm tired of digesting politics as spectator sport right i'm tired of cable news treating politics like professional wrestling i'm tired of everybody feeling like anything that they have any thought at all about anything political they have to go online and right. post 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 so in that sense i just got tired of other people getting so frothy or excited or angry or whatever about what was going on. I just can't deal with it all yeah. the time. Yeah. I just can't. It is uh, the, the, the experience I have a lot is I do a lot of travel across the country. And uh, lately I've been trying not to buy the airplane Wi-Fi just because it's really expensive and it's terrible. <laughs> but that, like, also that. But, but there is this kind of feeling when you get off a plane after a five-hour cross-country trip, like what happened during these five hours? Uh, I get a little bit of withdrawal, so you, you're, you're clearly much healthier uh, than I am, Peter. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, well, look, yesterday was a busy day of news. Uh, one of the most remarkable um, exchanges, um, well, there were a bunch of remarkable exchanges that happened at the uh, Aspen Ideas Festival. Um, we had a bunch of administration folks out there uh, talking. The one, and I don't think we have the clip, but I will just repeat it, and you all can find it online. There was a remarkable exchange between Andrea Mitchell, the um, obviously chief correspondent at uh, NBC News, with Dan Coats, the former U.S. senator from Indiana, the director of national intelligence. And for those of you that don't know, the DNI 
basically oversees all of the intelligence agencies. It's a creation of uh, post 9-11. And so the two of them are up on stage. Andrea Mitchell is asking Dan Coates about Helsinki. And there's a couple remarkable things we learned. We learned that the director of national intelligence, the highest, most senior intelligence officer in the country, still does not know what happened in the two-hour meeting between President Trump and Putin, which is remarkable. Uh, Andrea Mitchell asked Dan Coates, uh, uh, do you, is it a possibility that Putin recorded that meeting? Uh, and, and Coates said, yes, there is a possibility that happened. Uh, Coates said, in hindsight, there should have been a note-taker in the room. Uh, and then th the most remarkable exchange happened when Andrea Mitchell, in real time, says, Director Coates, uh, let me read you some breaking news. The White House just, just invited Putin to the White House. And you, you got to watch. And again, the, the audio doesn't do it justice. You actually have to watch it. And Coates is like, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> what? And then Mitchell, Andrew Mitchell says, we, you just invited him to the uh, White House. And he says something like, that'll be special. And, it, <laughs> it, and, it, and, and it's, it's striking to me, and we'll talk more to Laura Rosenberger about this, because Laura uh, worked at the National Security Council. She understands why process matters. It is unthinkable, somebody like me who worked in the White House for four years, that you could actually have an invitation uh, extended to... Uh, our greatest adversary, uh, without a meeting of some type to discuss whether that makes sense, and even if it does make sense, what we're going to discuss, and and or that if that meeting happened or if a decision had been made that had been made without the director of national intelligence there, and you keep him, even if like he is out of the loop, the fact that you keep him uh, in the dark uh, as he's making public remarks is just stunning to me. Uh, so, uh, again... Um, I, and I think Coates's reaction is interesting, and there's some interesting reporting this morning in the Washington Post about whether this may spell the end of his time as well, and he may have gotten on the bad side of the president. Well, it's it, that's something that people have done since the very beginning of the Trump administration, right, is like start talking about how much they disagree with them and how they can't do this anymore. You saw guys like... Uh, you know, the Mooch or Reince Priebus or Sean Spicer, whether they got pushed out or whether they just got tired of carrying water, who knows, right? But we're at a point now where these people like Dan Coates, like any of Trump's enablers, are going to have to go out and face the press and defend this. Who in their right mind wants to do that? No, Dan Coates has had. I, look, I don't agree with the guy in policy, but he's had a distinguished career. I think he served sure. twice as a, a Indiana senator, uh, two different terms, and uh, and and to put your reputation on the line. Look, we've already seen what has happened to people like Rex Tillerson. Uh, John Kelly, the chief of staff, is quickly approaching his one-year anniversary, and I think a lot of folks expect he will use that as the opportunity. You've got Mattis, who, again, by all accounts, the Pentagon still has no idea what was agreed to between Trump and Putin. I, look, I'm of two minds of this. I mean, these folks are putting their reputations on the line. You know, are they holding back the dam of really bad things? I don't know the answer to that. No, I don't either. But look, I, we talked about this with Bill the other day. If Dan Coates resigns, 
Um, it, it, you know, there were reports that Sarah Huckabee Sanders was going to resign. Uh, there are a lot of other intelligence people who have just finally appears to have had enough. And I can't say that I blame them, but it appears as though they've had enough. If they leave, there will be somebody else who will just immediately step into that role right. who will be not Dan Coates. I mean, again, I don't agree with Dan Coates at all, and he was shame on him for taking a job with the Trump administration, but like he's a real human being. Like he's a real right. distinguished person who has a career. He's not, you know, uh some crackerjack DNI that you could just <laughs> find anywhere. You know what I mean? Like he's 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 he knows what he's talking about. And so if he goes, then we'll just get somebody somebody else. Yeah. You know, we'll get you know, Judge Janine. <laughs> so <laughs> somebody like that. So we don't have the clip. I don't think we have the clip of the the moment of shock. But I do want to play a clip uh, from the idea Aspen Ideas Festival, where Dan Coates, the DNI, is talking about the Helsinki summit. If you had asked me uh, how that ought to uh, be conducted, I would have suggested a different way. But that's not my role. That's not my job. So. Um, uh, it is what it is. Wow. <laughs> I, let, wow. Let's just process that. I, I think I, there are a couple levels of which this is interesting. It's both a remarkable break for Coates to say, I would have I, I would have suggested a different way. So that that clearly will be perceived within the White House as disloyalty. But then to say it is not my job. Uh, to say, you know, I'm the director of national intelligence is not my job to maybe suggest we have a note taker in the meeting. Maybe we do a little planning. Maybe we have some clear deliverables. It's astonishing to me. Yeah. You know, I mean, to think again that you have this very, very serious job in this very, very serious time and you have someone who is clearly not up to the job as president and the best you can do is just say it is what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> Uh, it's shocking. It is shocking. Uh, two other administration officials were at the Aspen Ideas Festival. We had Kirsten Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, it, it was an odd statement she made. She both seemed to agree uh, that the Russians are trying to hack our elections, but seemed to revisit what happened in 2016. I haven't seen any evidence that the attempts to interfere in our election infrastructure was to favor a particular political party. I think what we've seen on the foreign influence side is they were attempting to intervene and cause chaos on both sides. So that's a little bit of a walk back from where I think the consensus of the intelligence community as well as the Senate intelligence community came down, which is clearly Russia tried to influence our elections. Clearly they favored uh, Donald Trump. Putin himself said uh, the other day, I, 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 I favored Donald Trump. Uh, now, we can have arguments about whether it make a difference, but, and I'm not really sure what game Nielsen's trying to play with that you, quote. You know, <laughs> we talked about how, how, you know, pulling away from social media and getting off, getting away from the news sometimes. I think she should maybe get back into the news a little <laughs> bit. Because when the, the whole child unif reunification thing, she was like, oh, I haven't heard the audio clip that was released by ProPublica, uh, uh, I guess it was last month, of the children screaming and crying and the guards uh, uh, belittling the children for crying. Um, she said she hadn't heard it. Yeah. She says she hasn't seen 
any evidence that Russia tried to influence the election one way or another. She should maybe read a newspaper. Well, okay, th- this is an ab- abrupt pivot, but I was going to do this story later, but I'll do it now. Uh, about a month ago, in, in really the throes of Scott Pruitt's scandal coverage, the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, was asked about Scott Pruitt, and he said, yeah, I really haven't been following the developments. I can't uh. comment on that. I don't know what? if you saw this. I don't know if you saw this yesterday. So yesterday, uh, uh, Paul Ryan uh, gave a speech where he talked about. And I'll just read from Politico: Conservatives should fight back against the alt right and white nationalists and do a better job reclaiming classic terms to stamp out identity politics. And he's speaking out against the racism, the nationalism of the alt right, which is ironically almost a year after Charlottesville. We finally have the Speaker of the House acknowledging that, you know, maybe the conservative movement has had issues with white nationalists. And it's an ironic thing. Two years after the rise of Trump, one year after uh, of, of after Charlottesville, the House Speaker suddenly has discovered that they, this might be a problem. I mean, I guess he's taking his head out of the sand the way that Kirsten Nielsen apparently yeah. should do as well. Read a newspaper. <laughs> just read <just, laughs> Just read a newspaper. We should just say that. Re- turn the TV on every, just, just every now and then. <laughs> you don't have to do it all the time. No, you certainly don't have to do it all the time. Uh, a couple other pieces of news that I just wanted to flag. Uh, one, one good and one sort of funny. Um, there was a, a study yesterday, um, a report that came out yesterday uh, that was released to NBC News about how the number of young voters uh, who are now registering to vote. And this is really kind of remarkable, and it's been spurred after the tragic Parkland shooting. And it, it's been especially pronounced in a couple of battleground states. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania, for instance, has seen a 61%, 61% of the new voter registrations have come from young voters. That's people between the ages of 18 and 29. Uh, that's remarkable, and it really shows. And those of you who have been out whether it's on the family separations, uh, marches, whether it's the gun marches, have seen the, the power of young people. Now, whether they come out to vote is a whole other thing, but that, that is certainly an encouraging sign for progressives. Uh, also, according to the story, uh, Virginia, Indiana, and New York have all seen increases about, of about 10 percentage points in the number of young people uh, voting, uh, registering to vote. Uh, and in Arizona and Florida, they've seen gains of 8%. And notably, all of those states have significant House and Senate races. And so that's a good thing in our country. Again, regardless of which way you vote, having young people come out and register and vote is a good thing. Yeah, and time will tell like how what kind of impact that will have. And time yeah. will tell uh, how much of the enthusiasm Democratic voters can keep up. I mean, we are realistically not that far away. No, we really are not. And the other story that kind of caught my eye yesterday was... Um, uh, an analysis of campaign fundraising in the midterm elections. Uh, this is according to Vox, but Vox is quoting Politico, that House Republican incumbent candidates in 56 districts raised less money than their Democratic challengers in the second quarter. And for those of you that are not that familiar with campaign fundraising, uh, it's almost a given that you're an incumbent, it's easier to raise money. And when you've got 56 incumbents that are being outraised, uh, and notably, uh, only 23 seats need to flip to Democrats to take back the House. That's a pretty big deal. So, again, 
money voter registrations are an indicator, but they're not predictive. We we absolutely need to get folks out to vote. So you know, the other thing about that on the on the money front, there was a This American Life episode a couple of weeks ago that was looking at a candidate in New York who who ended up losing, but. The point was they talked a lot about how Democrats are raising money right. and how they've done it in the past versus how they have to do it now. And Republicans have not necessarily picked up on the changing winds right. in how to raise money for a political campaign. Yeah, no, this is really— and A lot of Democrats are. Yeah, no, I, look, I, I, I was with uh, then-Senator Obama back in 2007 when he announced uh, he was running for president— and, and you know we really t- revolution and revolutionized in terms of using the internet, small dollars. Uh, you know, and the Trump campaign did you know quite well on that front as well in 2016. So it kind of shifts back and forth. And I think whether it's uh, digital advertising, whether it's fundraising, there are always new and better ways of doing it. Uh, the last piece I want to get to, and uh, Peter, I don't know if you saw this one. Uh, <laughs> this is a couple days old now, but when uh, the president, this president. Uh, was in the UK last week. That the famous scene of him walking out with the Queen to oh, inspect yeah. the Honor Guard, where it looks like it's the solar eclipse, where he's kind of passing in front of her and blocking her, <laughs> um, which is just hilarious to watch. It's the Trump eclipse. But more importantly, uh, did you see the claim he made about the Honor Guard? No. Okay. So um, it's been reported, but this is from the Independent. President Trump has falsely claimed that the Queen inspected her Honor Guard for the first time in seventy years all because of his visit to the UK. And what is, um, so the, the, the president said, quote, we met with a queen uh, who is absolutely a terrific person where she reviewed her honor guard for the first time in 70 years. They they tell me. Now, mind it's, you. They tell they me. They tell me. Now, mind you, um, leaving aside the fact that Queen Elizabeth has not been reigning uh, for 70 years, <laughs> uh, he, she inspects the honor guard multiple times a year. It is a frequent thing that she does with visiting uh, heads of state. And you've all seen that. They're basically people lined up. They walk and they walk in front of it. And, and the reason I point this out is this is a lie, which we'll call it for what it is, that really doesn't matter. It doesn't advance a policy interest in any way. Uh, it's a white lie. But why do it? it, it, it and, and my view is if you're going to lie about the small things, you're going to lie about the big things. And it just, in my mind, makes me wonder, does this president have a grasp on reality? This idea, they tell me, like, who? no one told you that. Uh, where did you pick that up? And why is that in your head right now, of all things? And to blurt this out in the middle of a cabinet meeting is just odd. It's a compulsion. Whether it's, well, whether he's a compulsive liar or a habitual liar or just a straight-up psychopath. Uh, you know, I do actually believe that somebody probably told him that. Some sycophant <laughs> inside of the White House probably told him that because you get, you know, you rise the ranks by telling Donald Trump what he wants to hear. So if you tell him that and that's something that he wants to hear, there's no guarantee that he's not going to blurt it out in front of a TV camera later. But it is, again, this concept, they tell me. They tell me. They tell me. They tell me I had the biggest electoral victory. They tell me I had the biggest crowd. They people tell are me. saying. People are saying. Yeah. Uh, and, and then it's it's just, you know, it, it, again, in the scheme of what happened in Helsinki and then the walk back and then the walk back of the walk back, it's not the biggest deal in the world, but it just sort of caught me. It was such an unnecessary lie 
uh, that doesn't advance anything, but it sort of shows in some ways this this compulsion, this inability to tell the truth. And it's you know, just... the the moment that I think that was highlighted the most for me was like it kind of I guess it was about a year ago when Donald Trump had his one of his early rambling press conferences and he kept talking about you know this was the biggest uh, electoral college win ever in the history of the electoral <laughs> college and peter alexander from nbc news just sort of said to him that is not true i'm not sure where you heard that but ronald reagan had a bigger uh, electoral uh when there are multiple right examples and he just goes oh well that's just what i heard that's, that's what, what i've I been heard. told that's what that's i've been told what i heard Look, this is Chris Liu. I am filling in for Bill Press on a beautiful Friday. Uh, we'll be back shortly. This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome to the Bill Press Show. I am Chris Liu, who is guest hosting for Bill on a beautiful Friday in Washington, D.C. It is fun to be here. Uh, we have Laura Rosenberger, who I'll do a proper introduction to in a moment. Uh, but in the first half hour, I threw out to uh, Bill's audience Tell me the best uh, uh, Trump nickname you have. Uh, I threw out Fat Nixon, Tubby Two-Tone, and we asked the listeners to, to submit. Uh, what do we have, Peter? All right. So we're on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. If you have any comments uh, or nicknames that you would like to share, uh, you could find us there. I'm checking them out. I will read them on air. Uh, we've had several people chime in to say Benedict Donald. Benedict <laughs> Donald uh, is a good one. We've seen, we've seen a, couple, a couple of those. Um, R.B. Blair says his favorite nickname is the comb over Caligula, <laughs> which that yeah. does, I like it. It doesn't kind of roll off the tongue as well. Right, right. Uh, there's also, um, let me see. Oh, here we go. Uh, Little Donnie Tweet Storm. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. Fat Pinocchio. <laughs> uh, Phil says Orange Julius. Or the Mango Mussolini. <laughs> and as a bonus here, we didn't ask for this, but we did get one. A, a good nickname for Don Jr. Little, okay. Don, little Donald Trump Jr. The best name that they've heard for Donald Jr. This comes from Jim Johnson. Traitor Tot. <laughs> Traitor Tot. If you have a good comment or a good nickname for Donald Trump, hit us up on Twitter at BP Show. Uh, well, that's our moment of levity. Uh, I am so pleased to have my friend Laura Rosenberger in here. This is, as I said earlier, this is the special Bill Press show because I get to invite all my friends in. Uh, Laura served for over a decade at the State Department, the National Security Council. She served as the chief of staff to the deputy secretary of state and was the National Security Council director for China and Korea. Uh, a foreign policy advisor to the Clinton campaign in 2016, and she's now the director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. Yeah, you can follow her. I'm all about plugs. You can follow her on Twitter uh, at Rosenberger LM. So, uh, <laughs> Laura, Laura was in Brussels uh, last week, uh, and so sigh. I sigh. So, so tell me what that was like on the ground. What was the mood? So it was this really, really strange thing because I basically describe it as almost watching a split screen television. On the one hand, you had NATO, NATO doing what NATO does, senior leadership from NATO talking about cohesion, unity, all the operational and practical and tactical stuff. Some of it's like super boring stuff, like how to move tanks in a certain amount of time or cross borders and 
all of these really important things that NATO does to keep us safe. And then you had leaders like Trudeau and senior German officials talking about how NATO is working together to fight all these challenges. And then you have Trump coming in and talking about how NATO's in crisis and basically throwing bombs into the atmosphere, you know, whether it was, um, you know, picking this fight with Germany about Nord Stream 2, this pipeline, which, by the way, there's real concerns about. But, sure. you know, Trump's concerns about that seemed to go away when he was talking to his buddy Vladimir Putin, right? <laughs> Convenient. Um, you know, or, or, you know, creating a crisis around, um, you know, the amount of defense spending that we expect from our allies. And and basically it was this, this again, this split screen view of an of a summit where on the one hand you have so many really good things being done and on the other hand you have this US president who basically out of his standard playbook is manufacturing a crisis so that he can then come in and pretend to solve it. So I want to break this down. You you and I you a lot more than me have been in these international convenings. So the 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 Trump folks, the MAGA folks will say uh, yeah, you know, the, it's all diplomatic speak. It's a lot of courtesies. Uh, we need somebody to come and be disruptive. Talk to me about being disagreeing without being disagreeable and, and, and how these things normally work and what is the most productive way to achieve results. So one of the things is, you know, I, I know you mentioned earlier about um, that, that I share your your affection for process on these right. things. And, and process matters. Like, there's such a reason why we have process around these kinds of events, because this is how you do get things done. You work out what you're going to have as your, quote unquote, deliverables for meetings in advance. You sit down with your partners and allies. I mean, these summit declarations that come out when, when NATO leaders meet are negotiated for a very long time in advance. And that's so you have real practical achievable outcomes. So you set your leaders up for success, you come in, you know what you're gonna get, and you come out with something real. And when you have this disruptive force, which really, as we saw in Brussels, wasn't really aimed at doing anything. I mean, Trump's disruption didn't actually change anything except to undermine the trust that our allies have in us. They knew coming in that Trump was going to be pushing on this burden sharing issue, this issue of whether our allies are, are contributing enough to their own defense spending. And, and let me just pause here for, for one second, because I think this is important. Yeah, let's explain this. Yeah, Trump talks about paying NATO dues as if it's his golf club, right? Um, as if our, our NATO allies are paying dues to membership at, you know, Trump's favorite golf club. The reality is that what we're talking about here is the level of defense spending that each ally contributes to their own defense as part of the NATO alliance, right? Every member of the alliance has to be able to contribute a certain amount from their own budget to their own defense in order to ensure that the alliance is able to stand together. The U.S. has, you know, by far, obviously, not only the largest economy here, but we have had very, like, the highest levels of, of defense spending of the NATO alliance. This has been an issue that, as you well know, Chris, is not yeah. new to the Trump administration. President Obama pushed very hard on this issue. In fact, the 2% spending goal, which is what Trump has been 
pushing on here is something that President Obama set with his allies um, in 2014 um, at the summit at that time. And so, you know, Trump is is rightly pushing our allies to spend what they have all said they were going to. Now, one thing he conveniently forgets is that 2% target was set to be met by the year 2024. Well, last time I looked at the calendar, we're still in 2018. <laughs> so, yes, we need to be moving in the right direction. Yes, we need our allies to be setting the right kind of goalposts to make that. But to come in and, and you know, one of the things he did in, in, a, in a sort of moment of just like, you know, trying to be dramatic, he was like, well, maybe it should just be 4% defense spending, right? Just, again, to throw a bomb. Which the United States could not meet. No, no. I mean, we're at like 3.3%, I right. believe, right? And, and getting to 4% would be uh, a huge, huge right. lift. Um, let alone, you know, trying to do this for others. So, you know, this disruption is not actually aimed at achieving anything unless what you're aiming to achieve is undermine the confidence of our allies. And the only person that helps, frankly, is Vladimir Putin. So we're talking to Laura Rosenberger, who is just back from Brussels uh, and really one of my favorite people, a foreign policy expert and uh, who served um, with great um, distinction in the Obama administration. So at the end of the NATO summit, uh, Trump does this uh, hastily uh, uh, arranged press conference where he talks about he got $33 billion. Is that what he got? He says he got. And then the minute he gets on the plane, President Macron says, yeah, there, there was no agreement on that. What exactly came out of this? I mean, basically what we have is is Trump claiming credit for the status quo. Right. You know, nothing changed. Um, in terms of the amount of defense spending um, that we're seeing from our allies. We are continuing on the same track that's been agreed by NATO. um, And, you know, Trump has this desire to, again, manufacture these crises. And we've seen this over and over again. I mean, frankly, it's it's the North Korea playbook, right? Threaten fire and fury and bring (laughs) us to the brink of war so you can then go have some, you know, summit with a brutal dictator in order to claim that you've solved the nuclear problem except, oh, wait— you haven't. Right. So straight out of the playbook, but this, you know, has long-term consequences. Right. All right. So let's talk about a manufactured crises. Let's talk about the summit in Helsinki. Huh. And by all accounts, uh, there was remarkably little preparation for this summit. Uh, there were no clear deliverables. And then this amazing two-hour one-on-one meeting with no note-takers, which we're now still dealing with the consequences of. Uh, have you ever seen anything like this? <laughs> No, I mean, <laughs> that's I mean, a pretty easy I mean, answer. Absolutely I mean, maybe, not. Uh, let's just be clear. I, I remember, uh, God, what year was that? The year that President Obama and Prime Minister Cameron went to an NCAA game together, and they sat there for two hours and watched basketball. But that's with Prime Minister Cameron of the UK. You're not sitting in a meeting with the president of Russia for two hours without a note taker and without a clear plan of what's going to happen. Yeah, look, I mean, one-on-ones aren't unprecedented in and of themselves, right? And and frankly, you know, when President Obama met with Xi Jinping um, out at Sunnylands in in 2013, um, they had uh, sort of two one-on-one sessions, um, but they were were literally walks around the grounds. Right. Um, And and it was like a get-to-know-you, let's have a sort of light conversation. It wasn't substantive in any depth. They weren't really going into any uh, significant amount of detail on any particular issues. It was short. 
Um, and I remember President Obama came back to our, our staff room and debriefed us <laughs> right then and there. I mean, immediately on, you know, the very light conversation that right. had happened. <laughs> it wasn't even like we were talking about major agreements here. So it's not a one-on-one in and of itself that's that's problematic as you noted though the two hours with an adversary with no agenda no note taker whatsoever um and i will say here you know there's i i feel the need to just like clear my throat on this there are a lot of calls right now uh for the interpreter uh to come forward and and testify or speak to what happened and i think that we need to be really careful about that not because i have you know any problem with with asking a u.s government employee to speak to those things but Chris, as you probably know, some of the best interpreters are actually really good at what they do because everything cycles through their short-term memory instantly. It's literally in the ear and out the mouth. We both have dealt with the interpreter in China. And Jim, I can't remember Jim's name, but he's fantastic. Absolutely. You could do a a five-minute monologue about clean energy, and he could do it back word for word. That's an amazing gift. It is. But it really depends on, frankly— not actually having that you know, long-term memory, right. it, it, the things don't get filed away. And the kinds of notes, I mean, most you know, good, good interpreters have incredible shorthand that they do when they interpret, but it's not meant right. to record the conversation. That's right. And so, you know, I, I think that, frankly, we should just accept the fact that we're probably never going to know what happened in that meeting. And that's Terrifying. Yeah, and so uh, there's way too much. I mean, to talk about. I want to make sure we have a chance uh, for Laura to talk about the initiative she's doing now. But I, I do need to catch us all up. So we, so we had the summit, we had the press conference, we had like the hostage video walk back, and then we had the walk back of the walk back, and then we had this remarkable moment happening in real time yesterday in Aspen, where the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence is being told about an invitation to Putin to come visit, and he does not know. That's kind of stunning to me. Uh, It makes me wonder, again, is it lack of process? Is there process? The DNA is not included? Or what is going on here now? I mean, I think what is going on here is the Trump, I alone can fix it form of foreign policy. I mean, you know, he said at the Republican National Convention in 2016, I alone can fix it. And that is truly how he thinks he's conducting diplomacy, whether it's with Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or whomever. Um, This man is a one-man show. And when you're dealing with enormous, complex challenges, whether that's North Korea, whether that's broader nuclear issues, whether that's terrorism, whether that's Russia, you have got to have your entire you know, apparatus, we have an incredible national security apparatus, as you know. We have many different tools of power. We can leverage them in all kinds of different ways. But we've got to be coordinated. We got, we've got to all be singing from the same sheet of music, and we have to be all understanding what we're driving for. So after a really kind of to- topsy-turvy weekend, and we're still on Friday morning, so who knows what happens later <laughs> on today— uh, I, Wait, I thought it's I thought it's been three months uh, since Helsinki. Yeah, it does actually. It feels that way. Uh, ironically, I'm actually going on to Helsinki on vacation <laughs> next week, and I'm not sure uh, <laughs> ever, anyone ever goes on vacation there, uh, and no one thought about it until after the summit. Let me ask you uh, my take on this after this crazy week. I'm actually sort of optimistic, and here's why: 
Um, it is becoming increasingly clear that the U.S. president does not speak for the U.S. Well, let's just the executive branch. You've got very strongly the DNI. To some extent, you've got the Secretary of Homeland Security. You've got um, the Defense Secretary. You've got a lot of the institutions of government who are either resisting whatever was uh, uh, agreed to or just basically staying in the course. And you've got a fairly strong bipartisan course in Congress that is now pushing back. Uh, am I just naive? No, I mean, I've got to tell you, I, I'm wrestling with this myself because there are days when I, I think, you know, um, you know, the, the, the so-called adults in the room theory, right, yeah. being able to sort of constrain the president has largely not borne out, I think. But I actually do think that in this past week um, and in particular yesterday, um, I think we may be starting to see signs that what what some of us sort of in democracy world talking about talk about is the guardrails maybe are starting to hold i think dan coates was part of that i want to point to two other things that sort of are consistent with the theory you just articulated one was a speech that rod rosenstein gave um at aspen yesterday where he announced a new um, mm -hmm. policy and report that's come out of the department of justice where basically he says we are going to be um, as a matter of policy, um, announcing to the American public when we believe there is foreign interference in our democracy. And he went through in great detail what is happening when it comes to foreign interference, why it's so problematic, and how this has to be taken out of a partisan context, and we have got to be talking about these threats to American democracy. And that was hugely important, especially given the way that Trump has denied some of these things. The other thing is, and I would commend to everybody to read this, an op-ed in the New York Times this morning from Congressman Will Hurd from Texas. He is a former CIA operative um, who is now, I believe, in his first term in right. Congress from a pretty moderate district in Texas, a, a di district actually that Hillary Clinton won. Um, and he basically says, um, you know, uh, that that President Trump is being manipulated by Russia and what are we going to do about it? And, and he goes, um, you know, into some good detail there. Um, about what Congress needs to do to step up. And that gives me that gives me some hope. What I do think, though, is really important. We've seen too many words from members of Congress, um, too many, you know, wagging fingers from Republicans. There are real steps, real legislative steps that they can be taking. You know, we have this thing, the co-equal branch. In fact, it's Article One of the Constitution, right? They have real powers. They need to act. It's it, We're beyond the time for words here. This is the time for action. And there are real things they can do. Um, I say this as somebody, and, and you would feel this too, is who, who used to work in the executive branch, it feels very strongly that Foreign policy, um, you know, is, you know, in many ways, uniquely the purview of the executive branch. But this, you know, there are a lot of things that are within Congressman's power, Congress's power. It's Article One time, as Madeleine Albright yeah. says. Look, I, I am I, I give credit to Senators Corker, Senators Flake for stepping up. Uh, but at this point, they're words. And, and I know one tangible way they can get results. If they say, you know what, we're going to hold out our vote on a Supreme Court nominee, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. that will get people's attention. Will. Uh, we are here with Laura Rosenberger. Laura is the director of Alliance for Securing Democracy. You can follow her on Twitter at RosenbergerLM. So I want to talk about the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Uh, and I talked a little bit about the, the goal of deterring undermining of our democracy. And you, you talked about the deputy attorney general's comments yesterday. Uh, we played a clip from the secretary of Homeland Security earlier where she both says Russia is interfering, but then kind of walked it back and said, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, not clear they favor Trump, which is not the totally consensus. Odds, yeah. Right. Um, talk about the, the goal of the group and, and what do you make about where we are in terms of preparation for a, another possible attack on our, our democracy? 
Thanks, Chris. So, yeah, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, um, we, we just actually marked our one-year anniversary um, last week. Um, it's a bipartisan and transatlantic initiative, so I've teamed up on this. As you mentioned earlier, I was mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton's foreign policy advisor. I've teamed up with Marco Rubio's former foreign policy advisor, um, and we've built a team of, of experts and analysts who are looking at um, ways that we can better analyze, understand, and track the different tools that are being used by Russia and, frankly, others like China um, to undermine our democracy, to interfere in our um, in our democratic processes, and developing responses to um, to counter that. So both things that we can do to defend ourselves better, and ways that we can deter that kind of activity. We released a report about two weeks ago uh, that includes a bunch of recommendations for the executive branch, for Congress, uh, for the private sector, the tech companies in particular, as well as civil society, which all have to play a role on this whole of society challenge. Um, You know, the way I think about this as a national security professional, it is abundantly clear to me that from from the standpoint of Vladimir Putin, this was an attack on the United States. You didn't fire bullets. You didn't have to. Um, This is an attack at the core of our country, the goal of which is to weaken us. And we need to stand up against that. And we need to do that in a united way, by the way. I mean, for me, it's actually really important that this is a bipartisan initiative, because as we've seen consistently from the analysis that we've done and as others, including, you know, Rod Rosenstein, um, Dan Coats and others have spoken to, so much of this actually hinges on trying to divide Americans from each other hitting on these hot button issues that are real issues of debate in American society, but trying to take extreme positions and, you know, using social media manipulation and other kinds of tools, make them seem far more prevalent than they right. are, or sort of inject these conspiracy theories um, in a way that, that is really aimed at polarizing us. And we need to stand up against that. So we just talked earlier in the context of Russia uh, and the foreign policy, how the U.S. president at this point may no longer speak for the, may not be the one who's speaking for the U.S. government. On an issue like this, when you've got the president waffling, it, you know, it feels like he, he literally has a gun to his head. He said those words in the cabinet room and then immediately improvised and said, well, it could be other people. Mm-hmm. And then you have the NSA, you've got DHS, you've got uh, the other arms of the federal government who are trying to take action. You've got, obviously got, uh, the, in terms of election systems, they, they go to the states. How important is it if the president is bought into this? So I'm going to get a little foreign policy wonky sure. here for a second. When we talk about deterrence, whether that's sort of, you know, keeping a keeping, you know, a nuclear power from from launching a nuclear attack or on the cyber front or any other kind of deterrence, there's two really important components to that. One is capability. Can you actually respond if something happens? And the other is credibility. And without those two things combined, you really can't effectively deter a hostile actor from undertaking whatever it is that they may choose to do. And we have seen, frankly, that Vladimir Putin is particularly risk acceptant. He's willing to to gamble on things and to believe that people's word is not particularly credible if he senses any kind of you know, any kind of weakness there, um, any sort of waffling. And so I think it's incredibly important that we have all these other folks standing up and saying, this is a problem, we're going to impose penalties, we're going to call this out, et cetera. But Putin is seeing a big green light from the president of the United States to just keep on doing 
what he's doing. And by the way, that's not just in the U.S. I mean, Putin has been using these tactics yeah. across Europe, um, trying to weaken NATO, uh, trying to weaken the EU, break the EU. So this is a huge, huge problem. And until the president really is bought in, we're not going to have that kind of deterrence that we need. The, the last point I'd make on this, Chris, is, is um, again, you know very well from where you um, sat in the Obama administration that there are these kinds of challenges that are what we call whole of government, right, that really require bringing together all the different pieces of the government to work together right. on a particular challenge. This is one of them. And when you have that kind of challenge, really the only place that is able to convene all of those different actors around one table is the White House. And when you don't have the White House bought in to doing that, you're going to continue to have these these cracks and seams. We have about another minute and a half, Laura. Uh, I'm with Laura Rosenberger from the Alliance for Securing Democracy. So there's no way you can answer this question in a minute. <laughs> what should the discerning member of the public do to spot fake, real fake news. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so what I would say is a couple things. One, I'm going to go back to actually citing um, Congressman Will Hurd, who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, he uh, he had a line um, at an event that we did where he talked about how we teach our kids about stranger danger. You know <laughs> not to get into a car with a stranger or take candy from a stranger. So why do you believe what a stranger tells you online without actually <laughs> stopping to think who's telling you about it? So that's one really easy thing. The other thing to understand, I think, is that a lot of this isn't just about false information. This is about sort of manipulating the information right. space, right? Um, and so I think it's just really important that people think very critically about where is something coming from? What's the motivation behind that? Is this actually a real group? Go online, Google it, right? If you encounter a group on right. Facebook or something, do a little bit of due diligence there. Um, just stop and think, um, evaluate, and, and then, you know, go forward. We've been having a fantastic conversation, way too short, with Laura Rosenberger, who is the director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, a former foreign policy advisor to the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, we are so happy to have her here. You can follow her on Twitter at Rosenberger LM. I am Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill Press. We will be back in a few minutes. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome to The Bill Press Show on a beautiful Friday morning in Washington, D.C. I am Chris Liu, who is guest hosting for Bill today. I am a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Uh, please follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. You can also follow uh, the show at BP Show. And uh, obviously subscribe to Bill's show on YouTube. Just search The Bill Press Show. But first... 
This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Chris, let me ask you a question. When you were growing up, did you have a trampoline or did you know anybody with a trampoline? Uh, I, I did not have a trampoline. Neither did I. No. But everybody had that friend with the trampoline. Right. Like I had the friend with the trampoline and we'd go over there. Well, here's the thing. Back in 1999, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a very strongly worded recommendation saying do not put a tramp a trampoline in your backyard and for all this time it's now 20 years later the american academy of pediatrics has not softened its stance whatsoever they still say it's a bad idea not only is it you know uh it could be bad for kids like developing bones and their backs but also just the obvious you fall off and crack your head wide open. <laughs> I, I was just in Seattle last week. I drove by a trampoline park. Oh, wow. It's like a warehouse of trampolines where I've you basically those. take your kids for a birthday party. I've taken one of my kids to one of those. Their friend had a birthday party at one of these things. And the thing about those, because I've seen them inside, it's surrounded by <laughs> uh, very, very soft things. Right. So if you fall, you're going to fall on something soft, not like the ground in the backyard. Well, uh, today... Trampolines are responsible for an estimated 90,000 emergency room visits every single year. 90,000 every single year. In fact, some insurance policies prohibit them in a house or they come up with exclusions for trampoline injuries. I, you know, I, I, I unfortunately did not have one, and I, I can't even imagine what the liability is like of having a trampoline. Yeah, right? And so basically, again, the American Academy of Pediatrics say, again, don't have a trampoline. They're very dangerous. They can be really, really bad for a lot of different reasons. So uh, right, we're gonna have to ask our next guest, Heidi Sherholt, who uh, from Iowa, I believe, whether she had a trampoline. We'll have that conversation. Well, we have the Bill Press trampoline that we have right outside the Ooh, studio. There you that go. We always. It was, so we're go. gonna have to do away with that, I guess. More bad news. I had some bad news last. Night. I got more bad news in Tennessee. You can get customized license plates, right? You can do that anywhere. Right. But in Tennessee, you can get a Sons of Confederate Veterans plate. It is exactly what it sounds like. It is a Tennessee license plate with a giant Confederate flag on it. <laughs> These days, when we talk more and more about the Confederate flag and the Confederacy and the monuments and the racist background and the hateful background of all of that, you would think yeah. that you would not necessarily want to put a Confederate flag on your car, right? You and I may not be the right demographic. You and I won't. Right. <laughs> you and I won't. Uh, but I'm from South Carolina. I know a lot of people who would. I wouldn't. But in Tennessee, the number of license plates displaying the Confederate battle flag is higher than at any other point in the last decade. People are applying in record numbers to get themselves... <sighs> a Confederate flag license plate. You know, my my In wife year is from of our Lord's 2018. Yeah, you know, my wife is from Illinois, and we are having a conversation with people who seem to see a lot of Confederate flags. In Illinois, wow. the land of Lincoln. Wow. Uh, so they're not only on the wrong side of history, they don't even know their history particularly well. Jeez. You remember the TV show The, ba the Brady Bunch, by the way, I, right? I know that. exactly where you're going. All right. In Studio City, Los Angeles, you can buy a piece of history. The Brady Bunch house, which was featured in the show, not only for interior shots, but exterior shots, is up for sale. Two-bedroom, three-bathroom, split-level house, around 2,400 square feet. It is on the market now for $2 million. So if you were a big fan or you want to own a piece of Hollywood history, here is your chance. I don't have $2 million. I'm not going to buy the Brady Bunch. <laughs>
live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. I am Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill on The Bill Press Show. Thank you all for being here on a wonderful Friday uh, morning. Uh, please follow me on Twitter, ChrisLu44. Uh, we've been having kind of this fun contest for people to uh, give their favorite uh, Trump a nickname that we can use on Twitter, and we'll read some more of those later on if we have any. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to have some serious conversation. I am joined this morning by my good friend. Everyone's my good friend this morning because I had my <laughs> friends come in. Uh, Heidi Scherholz. Heidi uh, is the was the chief economist at the Department of Labor when I was the deputy secretary there. Uh, she's now at the Economic Policy Institute where she's the senior economist and uh, director of policy. Heidi, welcome. No, thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to see you and to talk across the table like we used to. Well, yeah, I know. So I, the first Friday of every month, the employment numbers come out. Uh, and on the on the Fridays when Tom Perez was not reading the numbers, I would read him. And Heidi and I literally would sit across the table, and Heidi would explain to me everything that was in the numbers <laughs> and why they were good or bad or how to best spin them. And so I thought there was no one better to explain to us where the economy is than Heidi. So let's do a little bit of historical context. Uh, I, I, the president the other day, this president, not our president, said uh, – greatest economy of all time. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> that is a huge exaggeration. You can point to, I mean, just all you have to do is go back to the late 90s, the very strong economy of the late 90s that's stronger than what we saw, what we see today. Today's economy is strong. Like the 4% unemployment rate, that's great. It's one of the things that's important to keep in mind as the backdrop to that is that the declining unemployment rate is just the continuation of a long-run trend. So the after the Great Recession, or during the Great Recession, the unemployment rate reached 10% in the fall of 2009. By the end of Obama's term, it was it, term, it was had dropped to less than half of that at 4.8%. That decline has continued to 4%. Now the unemployment rate is 4%. But the president, an existing president, can't take credit for just not screwing up an existing trend. Uh, so you guys can get a sense of how smart Heidi is, and I forgot to give her a plug on Twitter. Uh, you can follow her at H Shearholz, H S H I E R H O L Z. Um, just look up Heidi. Yeah, it's uh, at, at EPI, fast. you'll it's figure easier, it out. Actually. Right. Um, when we used to do this kind of back and forth uh, when the jobs numbers came out, we would always say good numbers, good job growth, unfinished business. Is yep. wages. What is going on with wages right now? W where are we in terms of wage growth, and why hasn't it gone up the way that everyone thinks it should have gone up? That's a huge question. So that's exactly right. The unemployment rate right now is low. The labor market is pretty tight. I don't think we're at full employment yet, but the labor market is pretty tight. The big thing that's missing now is wage growth. Wage growth over the last year, if you account for inflation, it was actually flat. Workers are not seeing any growth in wages, and that's a big surprise. Yeah. We, you expect that the logic that economists use is exactly the same logic that anyone would think, that when, the, when your employer knows that you could quit your job and go around the block and get another job when the labor market is tight, they know that they have to pay decent wages to keep you, to get the workers that they need, and so that sh we should be seeing wage growth. Here's what I think is going on. Since the last time that very tight labor markets spurred strong wage growth in the late 90s, we've had two decades of policy 
onslaught that shifted p bargaining power, not necessarily in the union sense, but also in the union sense, that shifted bargaining power from workers to employers. So that sort of policy foundation where that, that provides workers bargaining power is not there. So you actually need a lower and lower and lower unemployment rate in order to have the tight labor market spur wage growth. I really think that's the situation we're seeing now. It's just the unemployment rate, while low, is not low enough to spur wage growth. Given that, we've seen all of these other ways that workers' bargaining power has been decimated. Uh, for those of you that can are watching this on YouTube, you can see Heidi moving her oh. hands around. It's, no, 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 it's fantastic. <laughs> People are watching this. It's live stream. You can see your hands. It actually, it's helpful. It's one of my favorite things about Heidi. Let, let me ask you, um, uh, every time I get asked this question, I, you know, again, we can talk about minimum wage. We can talk about overtime. We can talk about unions. How much of this do you think is just a fundamental shift of where the economy is, whether it's automation, whether it's globalization, and that we really are in kind of a different economy than we were 10, 20 years ago, and that maybe our thinking of where wages should go needs to change as well? That is also a really important question, and I think it's the backdrop to a lot of the way people think about this, that a lot of the, the, the thinking is, yeah, it's unfortunate, but what we're seeing now is just the natural that the natural outcome of a modern economy of when we're seeing forces of globalization forces of automation yeah it's increasing inequality but there's nothing we can do that is absolutely false the the unemployment the high the the uh, stagnant wages that we're seeing right now it's very little of it is due to these natural forces of automation and globalization. The lion's share is due to deliberate policy choices that shifted bargaining power from workers to employers. Some of it is sort of sins of omission and commission. Like, you know, we haven't really touched labor law in 75 years, but during that time, employer aggressiveness in fighting unions has increased dramatically. Labor law just hasn't kept up to provide countervailing, uh, countervailing power to workers. Labor standards have been allowed to erode, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the things that are causing stagnant wages for workers right now. It's absolutely a policy choice, and it's absolutely something that we can reverse. And I think one thing that's important to sort of keep in mind in that conversation is when you are the beneficiary of rising inequality, when you're a corporate manager, when you are in the 1%, it actually really is in your interest to get people to believe that the causes of our inequality are just natural and there's right. nothing we can do about it. It's just, so keep that in mind and know that there is a lot we can do about it and we should be doing it. So one of the initiatives that we focused on, which is frankly bipartisan, is upskilling workers. And, you know, the timing of this worked out well. Uh, President Trump yesterday announced a new initiative on apprenticeships. What is, people talk about the skills gap. Mm -hmm. Is there a skills gap? And if there is, what is the impact of that on wages right now? That's a good question that I'm getting a lot. People in this conversation, people are trying to figure out why aren't wages growing, even though we have low unemployment. One thing that comes up is people say, maybe it's that workers don't have the right skills, and so they're not seeing wage growth because of that. And it's it, as an economist, I can just tell you that logic is absolutely on its head. When workers don't have the right skills, if an employer can't find workers among the unemployed, the job seekers that have the skills they need, 
they actually have to raise wage in order to poach workers from other employers. Then that other employer raises wages to keep their workers right. and so on. And so when there is a skill shortage, you should see an acceleration of wages. So this idea that you're not seeing that you're that that our weak wage growth is because of of a skill shortage is just actually on its head. And the the sort of corollary to that is that our labor market right now is actually not marked by widespread skill shortages. Otherwise, we would be seeing acceleration of wages. So when we hear that there are 6 million, 6.7, I think, 6.7 million open jobs in mm -hmm. this country, what does that mean to the average? I mean, well, how, how do we understand that? So one of the reasons that we're seeing um, a lot of job openings every month is that there's actually a lot of churn in the labor market. People don't really understand that these net numbers that we see every month mask a lot of hiring and firing that goes on in the underneath. And so there's, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but we also have millions and millions of people hired every month. Um, and then another thing that we're seeing with this acceleration of job openings is within the internet, and we've, we've, we've been seeing this trend for the last m many years, but particularly with technology that makes it very costless for people to post right. a job opening. You see that happening a lot, people testing the waters, like, can I find that perfect candidate that has amazing qualifications for really cheap? They may not really be wanting to fill that job, but it's so costless to get that job opening up on their, on their website that, that that's one, another factor that we're seeing a lot right now. We are here uh, this morning with Heidi Sherholtz. Heidi was the uh, chief economist at the Department of Labor during the Obama administration. She's now with the Economic Policy Institute, where she's a senior economist and director of policy. So I, I have to ask you um, a couple of clips that we have. Uh, this may be one area where you agree with the president. Can we play the, pre the clip of the president talking about the Fed yesterday? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was on, we should point out, this was on CNBC. CNBC. And he said, first of all, he's not happy about the rate hike. I'm not thrilled uh, because, you know, we go up and every time you go up, they want to raise rates again. And I don't really, uh, I am not happy about it. Uh, but at the same time, I'm letting them do what they feel is best. Uh, okay, so I think you agree with the president on this one, <laughs> although you may disagree with the president opining on the Fed, which is sort of unprecedented, mm -hmm. right? That's well put. <laughs> I absolutely agree with the president that I'm you know, not happy that the Fed is raising rates right now. We have, right now, the low unemployment rate, as I said, we're not yet seeing it spur wage growth. We need that unemployment rate to get lower and lower to actually spur wage growth. And when the Fed raises rates, that stops that. That halts the improvement in the unemployment rate. So we don't want to see them do that unless there are clear signs of danger, unless there are clear signs that acceleration, that inflation is accelerating. We're not seeing that in the data now. So I think it's really premature for them to be boosting rates right now. Totally agree with the president on that. President should not be talking about that. There's And why? And again, we... <laughs> Again, not the worst norm he has broken. I would argue <laughs> that tweeting about the jobs numbers two months ago before they came out was problematic. Why don't presidents opine on the Fed? It's really important. The Fed is an independent agency. It is but he appointed the chairman of the Fed. Yep. They have the, the president appoints the chairman of the Fed, but the entire agency aside from that is all career, the dedicated career staff, and it is just extremely important because they wield 
such enormous power in our labor market. The Fed, this is something people don't understand, the Fed sets the unemployment right. rate by, uh, by how they adjust interest rates. And so it's just extremely important that that is in no way seen as a political choice, that they really are just doing what is best for the economy. So when the Fed, when the president weighs in, that's a big problem. So, I, look, you, you're, well, you may be in the, the business of being a predictor. I'm going to make you, in the, put you in the <laughs> business. Looking ahead, um, what do you think the impact of tariffs and a potential trade war will be both on growth, but wages uh, more broadly? Yep. Okay. So one thing I should, you know, this. I am not a trade expert, right. but I have. I am not one either. And I, that doesn't <laughs> so stop we, me from that opining. That won't stop right. us That's... from talking about. It. But I and I also do have really smart colleagues who right. are trade experts, and what I have learned from them is that it is, I tariffs aren't on the face of them evil if they're part of a really smart strategy for managing globalization. So, I am not inherently annoyed that Trump sort of reached for tariffs as a lever, but that's where my lack of annoyance completely ends, because the <laughs> way that he is doing it is is totally, it's it's not helpful at all. It's erratic. It's sort of slapdash. It, the, it is clearly not part of a longer-run smart strategy to manage globalization, and so it will have no effect but to provide disruption. Well, and it's the constant escalation. It doesn't yeah. feel like there's a strategy here. And, and again, right. whether you intended to start a trade war, this is how trade wars happen. Yeah, right. I have so we've seen where this will end, and we don't actually know. I think signs at this point point that suggest to me that it probably it may not have a huge impact on the macro economy. But it's not smart. It's, you know, we may see some industries that see some benefit from this. They'll be offset by other industries that are hurt by this. It's just not going to, it's it not part of a long-run strategy to help the American worker. But isn't that the broader issue with trade? And we'll qualify that we're neither of us are trade experts, <laughs> which is, you know, when you look at trade agreements like NAFTA, you know, all the analysis, or even TPP when we were trying to push it, show that trade agreements like this create jobs. But the problem is they create them in some places, they take them away in other places. And when you are in that town when the factory goes away, you think all trade agreements are bad. And I say this to you, you're from Iowa? Mm -hmm, that's I mean, right. I you, mean, you read constantly about soybean farmers, pork farmers, uh, 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 being they are being targeted by other countries. And, and, the, and, and, and if this raises, uh, or, or I guess drops the cost of their products selling overseas, that has a noticeable impact to those specific people. Yep, that's total, Yep, that's absolutely right. There's winners and losers. What we know in poorly managed, when there's poorly managed globalization, if you step back and try, okay, well, who are the big buckets of winners and the big buckets of losers? It has tended to be in the past the elite who are the big winners from globalization and rank and file workers who are the losers from globalization. That's what we've seen in our globalization regime that has typically been yeah. pretty poorly managed this totally erratic disruptive kind of management of globalization that we're doing now is not going to solve any of that do you i mean look you and i both serve in government i mean it, it look we would love to both say we are going to be you know the lords of all this and figure out how to solve these issues i mean what is the role of government in, in managing these globalization issues i mean is this too big for any government to manage so the uh, a core thing about many of our trade agreements um has been they've protected 
the interests of corporations and just and have not done the same thing for workers. Instead, they've really exposed workers to fierce competition from you know, lower-paid workers around the globe. So when, when we do do trade agreements, doing them in a much smarter way is a very, very clear thing yeah. that can be done. Yeah, let me, let me, that's actually a great pivot uh, to talk about policies that have helped corporations and not workers. Let's talk about the tax cuts <laughs> that were supposed to be this both a— economic boon as well as a political boon. I, I don't hear people talking about the tax cuts, and I wonder if it's because when these tax cuts were passed, uh, we have a lot of people on the other side who said, this is going to raise your wages by $4,000. That has not happened. Now, we can qualify that we are you know six months into this, but uh, the money seems not to have gone to workers. It seems gone to everyone except for workers. Yep, that's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. This was sold to people saying, "Yep, we're going to be showering money on corporations increasing their profits, but it's going to it's going to trickle down to workers. They will pass that through to workers." Economists whose livelihood did not depend on always finding that what's good for corporate profits is good for workers, knew that that wasn't <laughs> what was going to happen. You mean trickle-down doesn't really work, Heidi? <laughs> yeah, it has been tried and tested and has proven not to be effective. So we knew that it wasn't going to happen. Now we're start. You're right, it's early. It's only six months, but we're starting to see the results roll in that w- that we are, I mean, over the last year, workers' wages, real wages have grown not at all. They've right. just been flat. And so it, it, we knew it wouldn't happen, but now we're really starting to see it, that this is absolutely not trickling down to workers. Workers' wages aren't rising. The impact of this, which is what we knew would happen, would be but is just to increase inequality. You are showering money on corporations, increasing corporate profits, period. That's where it ends. It's not translating to anyone else. And I should just say, I'm not a deficit hawk. I think in many cases that we over the, the concerns about the deficit are really overblown. But I don't want to increase the deficit just to increase inequality. Like if we're spending that, if we're reducing revenues or spending money in, an, in a really useful way that will increase productivity and the, and the well-being of our country, I'm all for it. This is not that. This is just showering money on corporations in order to increase inequality. And we have seen this movie before yes. about trickle-down theories that haven't panned out. And then... To make up for what in this case will be well over a trillion and a half dollars that, that a hole that's being blown in the deficit, an additional hole that's being blown in the deficit, people on the other side go after Medicare, they go after Medicaid, they go after social programs, domestic safety net programs uh, that actually help reduce inequality in the country. So it it actually the the cycle continues and it gets worse and worse, and that inequality uh, uh, never gets solved. Yep, there is a. It's, I do think it's a deliberate attempt to squeeze the government that when in, and the important services that the government provides to people like Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, all the, the other kinds of important services, that if you cut taxes on corporations massively, s- increase the deficit, then later you start screaming about how, oh, we have to do something about the deficit and we'll cut other programs that actually do benefit the majority of American people. So that is the long-run strategy here, and I think we are, we're definitely seeing it play out. 
We are here with Heidi Scherholz, who formerly served as the uh, chief economist at the Department of Labor, one of my former colleagues. Uh, all right, Heidi, let me ask you, if, if I put you in charge of the Department of Labor, if I put you in charge of the <laughs> Council of Economic Advisors, the National Economic Council, what are your policy prescriptions mm -hmm. for how you would help workers in an ideal world? So what I think is the key thing that's keep, I mean, the 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 big dynamic that I'm most concerned about right now is stagnant wages. What I think is the key cause of stagnant wages is not one thing. There's not one thing we can do to solve this. A whole host of policies have changed that have you know, taken bargaining power from workers that have reduced their wages, shifted it to their employers. So we, my strategy would be not try to do one thing, do a whole bunch of things, including strengthening labor standards like the minimum wage, strengthening overtime protections, paid sick days, fair scheduling laws, all of those things that would sort of eke back a piece of bargaining power that's been wrested from workers at some point over the last four decades. Um, and another key piece of legislation that needs to pass is we need to do something to boost unionization. Unions provide the most effective way to shift bargaining power to workers. The decline in unionization is not because workers don't like unions. We know that more than half of workers say that if they could, or around half of workers say that if they could vote for a union in their workplace tomorrow, they would do it. So there's a huge gap between people who want to be in the, in the unions and those who are, and that gap is because of massive employer aggressiveness in fighting unions. So we need labor law reform to really give worker union unions more teeth in order to fight back against that um, employer aggressiveness. You know, that one date that sort of sticks out for me is it's July 24th, 2009. July 24th, 2009 was the last time the federal minimum wage was raised. So we will mark that next week. That's been nine hmm. years since the federal minimum wage has been raised. It's 725 right now. Uh, to be fair, a majority of states in this country have a higher minimum wage, but there's a significant number of states, in particular in the South, that have no wage, no state minimum wage. Uh, or they tie theirs to the federal mm -hmm. wage. And so um, 725 just doesn't go the way it used to go. I, I remember when I was at the, um, the Department of Labor, I used to have a poster outside of my office. It was a minimum wage poster from when it was raised during the Truman administration to f uh, 75 cents. And we went back and look, 75 cents back in 1948 had a higher earning power than 725 does uh, now. And it's a, that's another sensible policy prescription. Um, we've got about a minute and a half left. Um, what are some of the other policy prescriptions that can get people off the sidelines and, and working again? One of the things that just happened in the Supreme... Oh, get off the sidelines and working again. Uh, here, I'll tell you that my Please, favorite policy right now is... It, it just was uh, the reason it's needed is because of a recent Supreme Court case that said that it was totally legal for employers to ask workers as a condition of right. employment to sign agreements that say, if we screw up, if we mess you up and someone, we don't pay you what you're worth, we we create a hostile environment for you, you can't take us to court. You have to go to arbitration where we decide the arbitrator. Right. The Supreme Court just made that legal for totally open the floodgates for employers to do that they will and are doing that and so policy to to um ban that practice say employers can't actually force workers to sign mandatory arbitration agreements is really important to the key enforcement of a key piece of enforcement to all these important labor standards we've been talking about
There's a lot of work to be done, and I think when Democrats come into power, a lot of cleanup that will have to get done. That's right. Uh, what else are you thinking about these days? What are the other ways that we can help workers in general? So another, this this whole bucket of increasing employer practices, where, m- proliferating employer practices where they ask workers to sign away their rights right. as a condition of employment the first day on the job or whatever. The, another case where we're seeing that is through non-compete agreements. Emplo- workers are being asked Workers who do not have access to trade <laughs> secrets, workers who do not make a lot of money, the class Who are not stories. skilled, yes, per se. exactly. Who are being asked to say, okay, I will not work in my field. I will not be able to take another job for a year or so in my field. And it's just a power grab by employers. It's just them saying, because as we mentioned, a key piece of worker, uh, worker leverage is to be able to say, I could quit and go to someone else. You have to actually treat me decently. So when employers make workers and sign a non-compete agreement, they're just cutting off that bit of worker leverage. Those kinds of agreements need to be banned. Yeah. There's a lot of work that needs to be there done. There is. Yeah. Uh, this is Chris Liu. I'm guest hosting for Bill Press on a Friday. Uh, we've been joined by Heidi Scherholz, a former chief economist at the Department of Labor. She is now at the Economic Policy Institute. Please follow her on Twitter at hscherholz. Heidi, thank you for coming in. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I am Chris Liu, and I'm guest hosting for Bill on a beautiful Friday morning. We are at the studios uh, right off of Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Uh, please follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. You can follow Bill's show at BP Show. Uh, also, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. Just search The Bill Press Show. Uh, before we get to our next guests, what are people talking about on Twitter, Peter? Well, uh, we have a couple of comments. Remember you earlier in the yes. program, you had asked for some nicknames for Donald Trump, some of your favorite nicknames. We do have a couple of them. I'll read them very quickly. Uh, Trump, the orange orangutan, <laughs> comes from orangutan comes from uh, Charlene, Charlene on Twitter. Uh, KG says Putin on the Potomac. Oh, I like that one. That's that, and that's good. very appropriate given the summit coming up. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Smacky Pipe on Twitter, this is, gives a couple of different ones, but I'll just, I'll just read my favorite. 235-pound upright Velveeta bolus in the shape of a man baby. I think that's that's 280 really, characters. That may have taken up it all of It rolls tw- off the tongue. Right, it doesn't. <laughs> There's a lot wrong with that. Uh, if you have a comment or you have a, uh, a nickname, find us on Twitter, at BP Show. All right, I'm, I'm either sticking with my two favorites, my originals, which were Fat Nixon or Tubby Two-Tone, although yeah. Mango Mussolini, I'm actually That's getting. pretty good. Mango Mussolini is pretty good, actually. We are joined now. Again, this is the morning for me to get coast. I get to have all my friends in. Uh, I am here with Chris Kang. Chris served in the White House with me. Actually, we know each other from before then when Chris worked for Senator Durbin and I was with Senator Obama. Chris was in the White House uh, Office of Legislative Affairs. He also served as deputy counsel to the president. Uh, Most importantly, during his time in the White House, he was in charge of shepherding all the various judicial nominations. uh, So he knows a lot about uh, judges and how one picks judges, how one vets them, and how one gets them confirmed. Uh, He later served as national director 
director of the National Council of Asian and Pacific Americans, and he is now the chief counsel at Demand Justice, which is a new organization engaging progressives in the importance of our courts. And you can follow Chris on Twitter at CDKang76. Chris, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So... Um, there's a lot to talk about. We, <laughs> I, you know, leaving aside all the judicial nominations that were already coming through the pipeline, you now have a Supreme Court nomination. I was pointing out that I, we are less than three weeks since the time that the president announced the Kavanaugh nominations. It feels like three years, given the news that's happening. And I know it's been busy for you. What have you been doing on that front? So uh, our new organization called Demand Justice started just in May, and we are here to f help progressives fight back against Trump's judges. Uh, and it turns out that we started just in the nick of time with this <laughs> with this Kavanaugh uh, nomination in front of us. And I, what we're really working to do is educate progressives about what's at stake, and specifically what's at stake with Brett Kavanaugh. I think his record shows that he's anti-health care, he's anti-Roe versus Wade, and he thinks Trump is above the law. So we're out there uh, with ads. We're encouraging people to call their senators, show up at events, and really make their voices heard. So uh, I want to break all of that down, but before I do that, I want to just play a clip from Senator Corker, who has not been shy about criticizing the president on other issues, but seems quite enamored with this pick. To see someone of his caliber who's dedicated his life in the fashion that he has um, is... It's inspiring to me to see someone like him have the opportunity uh, to serve, uh, serve in the Supreme Court. Uh, inspiring? Would that be a word you would use? Uh, it, it's not. I mean, look, <laughs> on, on some level, he has the resume of somebody who, who should serve on or could serve on the Supreme Court. But this idea of the, the career he's had, I mean, this is a guy who was, who was a lawyer in Bush v. Gore. He worked for Ken Starr in that investigation. He went to work in the Bush White House. Like, this is a political lawyer. He's been a political lawyer, a political activist. Senator Durbin, when he was nominated, Kavanaugh was nominated for the current position he has, called him the Forrest Gump of Republican politics <laughs> because he showed up at all of these different critical political junctures. And so this idea, like, oh, he's a great public servant. It's so nice to see somebody like this get the opportunity. He's been planning for this from the day he graduated law school, if not the day he was born. So we know that he has served uh, on the D.C. Circuit for about a dozen years. He also, as you said, served in the Bush, Bush 43 White House. What do we know about that period of time of the work he did, and what do we still need to know? We still need to know a lot. He served in the White House Counsel's Office for two years, and then he served as Staff Secretary for three or four years. And as you and I know, the Staff Secretary is responsible for all of the papers that come to the President's desk. And so they're weighing in a lot. They're offering their opinions. They're helping solicit views from around the White House to gather a consensus. And so there are more than one million pages of documents from, that he has from his time at the White House that the Senate already is beginning to ask for and that it really needs to see so we can understand what his views are before he's picked for the before he gets a hearing for the Supreme Court. So uh, I, I know you and I and many other people who served in the uh, Obama administration laugh about the vetting of nominees, not just judges in general. It, it seems like vetting is not a word that people really understand. And we sort of saw this play out yesterday. Talk about the Ninth Circuit judge um, whose nomination was withdrawn. What came up? Uh, as part of the vetting process. 
So as part of the vetting process, uh, you're required to turn over all of your public writings since the age of 18. And Ryan Bounds, who is an assistant U.S. attorney in Oregon, uh, wrote a lot of incendiary writings in college. And I think that there were sort of, um, it's funny, the press will call them racial. I think other people might actually just call them racist. Racist, right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think what's fascinating about this and what this shows is, one, they were 20 years ago. Two, they were his personal views. And three, they were before he became a lawyer. And yet Republican senators agreed that those were dispositive in voting down his nomination. And so now you look at the Kavanaugh nomination and some Republicans are turning around and saying, we don't need you to see the documents that this top White House advisor reviewed, contributed to, participated in before you make a decision on the Supreme Court nominee. And I think that that's just crazy. So the, the withdrawal of this nomination yesterday, the, the Ninth Circuit judge, also highlights another procedural um, courtesy, we'll say that. It's called the blue slip process because in that case, and before we do that, why don't you explain what the blue slip process is, how it normally has worked and how it now works? So for 100 years, literally 100 years, there's this process called the blue slip. It's a blue piece of paper, and a judicial nominee couldn't move forward to a hearing or a confirmation vote unless their home state senators returned this blue piece of paper that said, I approve of this nominee moving forward. So 100 years, there's only been three exceptions. Now, the, that precedent is completely thrown out the window as Chuck Grassley and Mitch McConnell have decided they don't care if Democratic senators have, have concerns. They don't care, despite the fact that they blocked 18 of President Obama's nominees through blue slips. Suddenly, home state senators' views aren't important anymore. And, and Chris, we know this. We, you work for Durbin. I work for Obama when we were in the Senate. I mean, we returned our blue slips for judges that George W. Bush tried to nominate. Right. And in the Obama administration, we worked really, really hard with Republican senators. And I'll tell you, we didn't always get our first choice. I mean, quite honestly, we didn't always get our second or third choice, but we worked to find consensus because that's what the blue slips are for. And here, the Trump administration doesn't care. It's not consulting with Democratic senators. In some cases, they're not even consulting with Republican senators. Right. And you're seeing that the effect of that is that these nominees are really extreme, so extreme, in fact, here that the guy who was voted that was polled yesterday did not have the support of either Oregon home state senator, and he was so extreme that even Republican senators eventually balked. So let's go back to Kavanaugh. You know, we've um, obviously there's there's a bucket of documents that we n need to see. Um, That's a big bucket, by the way. Big, it's a big one million page. Bucket. Yeah. So, so explain to me the process of how that's going to work. They're sitting in the Bush archives somewhere. They are, and I think that the best parallel here is to remember what happened with Elena Kagan. Elena Kagan also was a lawyer in the Clinton White House, and when her nomination for the Supreme Court came up, Senator Leahy and Senator Sessions, in a bipartisan fashion, sent a letter to the archives saying we want all of her records from her time at the White House. Every email she sent and received. We want all of the memos she wrote. You know, they even went so far as to say, we want everything that has her initials on it. <laughs> uh, they didn't quite get the initial documents, but uh, but they did get every email. And we, as the American people, saw every single email that Elena Kagan sent and received. And I think that that is the process that we should demand uh, to see for Brett Kavanaugh. And I think it's just going to take a lot of time. So what what is your level of confidence that that courtesy slash precedent will be followed. We've seen a lot of precedents kind of fall. Let's not even start about Merrick Garland, but let's just say, uh, do, do you think Senator Grassley will abide by that? 
It's really too early to tell. I think one thing is that Senator Grassley does, uh, I think, pride himself, rightfully so, on his reputation for transparency. And so we have that going for ourselves. We also have Senator Leahy's precedent here. I mean, here's a guy who I remember when I was at the White House, we received that letter of request <laughs> for all of Elena Kagan's documents. Like, you thought, like, shouldn't the Democratic chairman of the Judiciary Committee be looking out for our nominee? Uh, and it turns out that the Senate shouldn't view the nominee as their nominee. This is not a Democratic right. Republican nominee. This is a chance for the Senate to to exert its institutional role, and and I don't know. It's hard to put a lot of faith in Republican senators exerting any institutional prerogative, but but hope springs eternal. So what exactly is happening right now? Kavanaugh is doing a series of courtesy visits. Are they with Democrats and Republicans or just Republicans at this point? So far, just with Republicans. I think the Democrats are, one, taking some time to review his record so that they can ask informed questions and have a real substantive conversation with him. And two, uh, Majority Leader Schumer has said that he wants to wait until we have enough of a sense of what the process is going to play out with respect to these documents before he takes a meeting. And I think most, as tradition sort of holds, most Democratic senators will wait until the leader uh, has his meeting first, and then we'll follow. So I've done these courtesy visits when I when I was up for a nomination in this deputy secretary. I know you've shepherded way too many people through this. What Explain to people what really happens in these meetings, and more broadly when we get to a hearing, how candid or lack of candor do we expect from these nominees? You know, these courtesy meetings can run the gamut. They, I did 92 courtesy meetings with Sonia Sotomayor. And, you know, <laughs> some of them came from, like, you know, they varied from let me let me show you my dog, would you like to pet my puppy, to, like, real serious hard questions about the law. Uh, and I will say that, for example, the one that really has always stood out to me yeah. is Susan Collins. Like, she sits down with a cup of tea, and she grills you for an hour, and she really knows what she's doing. She takes it seriously. And I think that if she takes it that seriously with Brett Kavanaugh, She's going to have a lot to be concerned about. Although I always remind people, be careful what you ask for. You remember the nomination that preceded Alito? Harriet Myers. Yeah. Harriet Myers, is, I mean, I mean, she fell apart during her courtesy visits, and then we ended up with Alito. I'm not sure Harriet Myers would have been a better pick uh, at this point, but those— Meetings do matter. They absolutely matter. And if you're not prepared or you say something wrong or, you know, you reveal your true views, uh, which I think I think nominees are more cautious in the actual hearing, um, you know, you can run into trouble. But to your question about, like, what happens at the hearings, it's hard to say. I think sen uh, the nominees often say what they think they need to say to get confirmed. So you'll hear a lot of talk about Roe versus Wade being precedent as if stating an objective fact today means it's going to— it's going to hold true tomorrow, right? It's like saying the sky is blue. That doesn't mean it's never going to rain, right? And so we have to hold Brett Kavanaugh to a higher standard. And he's got to, he's got to explain that he's going to uphold Roe versus Wade and that he's going to continue to carry that for the access to abortion and contraception forward. I also think that Brett Kavanaugh is going to have a higher burden here because in 2006, when he testified for his current judgeship, he testified that he had no role in detainee and interrogation policy, and it came out a year later that he did at least attend one meeting. So Senator Durbin has accused him of misleading the Senate. Uh, Senator Leahy actually referred the matter to the Depart Bush Department of Justice <laughs> for perjury. Uh, I, I don't know how, how seriously the Bush administration looked into it, but, but but that's how serious the charge is, and that's why you can't just take a nominee's word, and apparently not even Brett Kavanaugh's word under oath, uh, at face value. You've got to look at the records and look what they've actually done uh, in, their, in their various positions. We're talking with Chris Kang, who is the chief counsel at Demand Justice. 
which is a new organization engaging progressives in judicial nominations. You can follow Chris on Twitter at CDKang76. This is Chris Liu, who is guest hosting for Bill Press. You can follow me at ChrisLiu44. Uh, let me talk. I uh, Something interesting I had seen uh, recently, I didn't know they did public opinion polls on judicial nominations, uh, but there was one that I think Gallup did a couple of days ago on the Kavanaugh nomination. What did that find? Yeah, you know, it turns out that Gallup has been doing these initial favorability polls for since um, they've done 11 over the last three decades. Uh, and Brett Kavanaugh has the worst numbers of any nominee <laughs> of the last 11. So when you look, 41 percent think that the Senate should confirm him. 37 percent think the Senate should not. So that's a margin of plus four. That's really remarkable, because when you have a nominee and you do your rollout and you have your gauzy, you know, biography and the ridiculous Washington Post op-ed that right. he's a good carpool driver. Like, you set, the, you set the narrative. And so by that measure, nominees tend to have very positive favorability ratings. Brett Kavanaugh's rating, you talked about Harriet Myers. At this point in her nomination process, Harriet Myers was plus eight. Yeah. I, Twice I, as good I, as Brett Kavanaugh. And now. I tweeted this out. Merrick Garland's numbers were fantastic, and that didn't really mean anything to Senate Republicans. Right. Uh, he was at, like, he was plus 24. Uh, but you look like he is in Kavanaugh's and Myers territory. He's in Bork territory. He wishes he could be in Bork territory. Bork was plus six. <laughs> and so, like, this is historically bad numbers. And I think that it shows that for all of the pundits and Republicans out there trying to pretend that his confirmation is inevitable, nothing could be further from the truth. So I want to go back to a point you made about this idea of precedent. Um, you know, Every nominee I've seen come up there has talked about their respect for precedent. I would point out that the Supreme Court, in one of its final decisions, uh, overruled a 1977 case on public sector unions. Uh, these are all the same justices that profess to respect precedent, overruled a 1977 Supreme Court precedent. I would remind folks that Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973. I don't think those four years are going to be particularly dispositive for those people who want to overrule the decision. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that, again, these nominees talk about principles broadly, and then when they have the chance, the first chance they get, and I will say that Justice Alito has been doing a tremendous job of chipping away at this precedent until finally this year he had a chance to, to do it uh, in the Janus opinion and really yeah. strike a blow against public sector unions. You saw them overturn precedent in Citizens United. You saw them overturn or chip away at the Voting Rights Act and that precedent in Shelby County versus Holder. They're all, time and time again, and this conservative, radical, ideological Supreme Court has shown no, has shown no respect for precedent if they don't like it. So I want to ask about that. Uh, you know, we haven't talked about the rest of Trump's judicial nominations, and I understand there's a little bit of gamesmanship in terms of how they answer the questions. There's been this pattern of nominees not even answering whether they respect Brown versus Board of Education, which I think we could safely say is settled law at this point. Uh, is that... Is that how you would coach a nominee to answer the questions? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, one, you coach a nominee to be honest, and maybe they don't think Brown versus Board of Education was rightly decided. I don't know, so I wouldn't coach them to lie. But, but this idea, the one fiction that they're peddling out there is that nominees can't talk about about Supreme Court precedent. They can't talk about prior opinions. If that were true, then Brett Kavanaugh shouldn't be out there praising Justice Rehnquist's dissent in Roe. 
right? He's clearly, he shouldn't be criticizing Chief Justice Roberts' opinion upholding the Affordable Care Act. So the idea that suddenly you can do these speeches in public to right-wing conservative interest groups, but then when you're in, under oath to the entire Senate, oh, no, I can't talk about precedent. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Either you think Brown versus Board of Education was rightly decided or you don't. So we've got about seven minutes left. I want to get into another area that we haven't talked about. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh has some personal experience with the prosecution of a president. Uh, and he's been a little schizophrenic on what his views are on that issue. It's so weird. It's like the, his opinion <laughs> only depends on what party the president is. <laughs> exactly. So tell me, so, so tell the listeners what his role has been and how his views have evolved. Right, so he was uh, he was involved in the Ken Starr's very involved in Ken Starr's uh, investigation into President Clinton, and at that point had a very expansive view of prosecution and the role of a presidency. And then when he sits in the George W. Bush, as he says it, as he worked in the George W. Bush administration, he's like, suddenly I realize presidents are busy. Right. They're so busy. We don't I want to distract them with investigation. I contemplate. I had no idea. Although you look at <laughs> President Trump golfing so much, and maybe they're not as busy. But, um, but this idea suddenly that he had this epiphany um, that presidents are so busy that sitting presidents not only should not be indicted criminally, they shouldn't even be investigated. And that is remarkable. I will also note that his his theory on this has not, uh, as you say, it's gone back and forth. It's not simply because he lacked imagination about how busy president could be. He had had this view before he served in the Bush administration. But the idea that he's all over the place, I really think the one thing that we all know about President Trump is the thing he demands more than anything is loyalty. And you really have to wonder what questions he asked, what assurances he got, what he read into Brett Kavanaugh's writings and speeches. There's this great video clip of Brett Kavanaugh at a panel and say, who here thinks that a president can, should not be criminally indicted? And Brett Kavanaugh raises his hand, right? Like, that's how, that's really how Bob Corker talks about, oh, it's so great for him to have this opportunity. That's how he got the opportunity to be here today. Yeah, do you have any doubt that that pre-election list of 25 nominees do you have any doubt as to how those 25 would vote on an issue like Roe versus Wade? No, no doubt at all, in part because President Trump said time and time again that he has a litmus test that his nominees would overturn Roe automatically. You have Leonard Leo from the Federalist Society, who uh, even his supporters say has done an amazing job of laying the groundwork to overturn Roe versus Wade. This is what Trump campaigned on. This is how he won by convincing evangelicals who had a lot of concerns about him, rightfully so, don't worry, at least I'll help you overturn Roe versus Wade. And now suddenly when that moment comes, Donald Trump says, well, I don't know how they would rule. <laughs> it's a mystery. Leonard Leo's like, we don't know. They don't have opinions. I know they have opinions. That's why you picked them. But you're realizing now, now that the moment is here and two-thirds of Americans support Roe versus Wade, you want to pretend that, that you don't know what's going to happen. And I think that that's crazy. So your organization, Demand Justice, uh, obviously this is a important moment with the Kavanaugh nomination, but you are focusing on other judicial nominations as well. Talk a little bit about this process, or, or more broadly, um, Mitch McConnell and, frankly, Donald Trump have been very open about this is one of the great accomplishments of this administration is filling so many judicial nominations. Uh, put into perspective what this is and why there were so many openings to fill. Yeah, so we started uh, because Trump and McConnell were so successful in packing the courts with his extremely ideological judges. 
And quite frankly, progressives aren't paying enough attention. Now, the moment here with this Kavanaugh vacant, this Kavanaugh nomination may help close the gap. But generally speaking, progressives don't realize that every single issue they care about comes down to the courts. And so we have to start paying attention to who's there. And so that's why we were stood up. In the last two years of the Obama administration, Senate Republicans confirmed two circuit court nominees. <laughs> two. Uh, the circuit court's the level just below the Supreme right. Court. This is the fewest number since the 1800s. Literally, so the 1800s. let's just let's let, let me just uh, stop you for there for a second. Uh, I, I think at his campaign rally that Trump did in Montana maybe a week and a half ago, he was out there basically ridiculing Obama for leaving so many openings on the court so he could fill. That's not true. No, and I can't tell again, like, if he's just that stupid or he's just, like, he doesn't understand. Or if I were Mitch McConnell, I'd be really mad because he worked hard to keep his pocket, (laughs) to keep all of these. He deserves the credit or really the blame for keeping all of these seats vacant so that there were twice as many vacancies when President Trump took office as when President Obama did because they intentionally confirmed, they only confirmed 22 judges total two to the circuit courts, and then you look what they've happened, what they've done here with the Trump nominations. Even though Ryan Baum's nomination went down yesterday, they've already confirmed 23 judges to these circuit courts in less than a year and a half, compared to, again, two in two years, 23 judges now. They're only 180 positions total. Yeah. So they're really dramatically reshaping the courts. I, I want to talk about just the demographics of this. And, you know, you and I have both been active in the Asian American community. One of the biggest accomplishments, I think, from my perspective, that President Obama did was he more than tripled the number of Asian American federal judges. I suspect we're not seeing that same level of diversity among President Trump's judicial nominees. We're definitely not. I will say <laughs> that uh, on Asian Americans, uh, he's doing okay, but, but I think he's had one Hispanic nominee confirmed, period. I don't think he's had his one African-American nominee (laughs) confirmed yet, Uh, and that's remarkable. Overall, more than 90% of his judicial nominees are white. This is a rate we haven't seen since Reagan. Uh, And on the one hand, like, we shouldn't be surprised. On the other hand, it's so appalling to sort of have the judiciary be more white male than it's been in a quarter century. So, again, you're talking to a a group of uh, progressives uh, listening. What is... What should they be doing more broadly regarding the judicial nominations, but more specifically on Kavanaugh? Well, they should be following us at We Demand Justice. Uh, they sh- on Twitter, it's We Demand Justice. We have a website, stopkavanaugh.com. But they should be engaging in these issues. They should be calling their senators. Right now, the biggest thing we need to do is get those one million documents from the Bush Library. And we're calling on Senator Grassley not to schedule a hearing until we do. So they should pick up the phone. All these people who have their senators on speed dial, call your senator today and say there should not be a hearing until we at least see those documents. This has been Chris Liu. Uh, I am here with my special guest, Chris Kang, who's the chief counsel with Demand Justice. You can follow Chris at CDKang76. Thank you for being here with us. Happy Friday. This is The Bill Press Show. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.